This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Toronto Metropolitan University is the new Ryerson. We learned this past Tuesday a decision had been made at the downtown university to change the name after it came to light that Edgerton Ryerson was involved in the creation of the notorious residential school system for Indigenous children. Ryerson University is my alma mater. Actually, it was Ryerson Polytechnical Institute when I attended in the mid-1980s and earned my Bachelor of Applied Arts degree in radio and television. It'll always be Ryerson to me, but Toronto Metropolitan University is certainly bland and generic enough not to offend anyone. Libby had a discussion about the name change with a panel of invested individuals. Indigenous elder Kat Krieger, who works extensively in secondary and post-secondary institutions, history professor Dr. Ronald Stagg, and politics and public administration professor Dr. Patrice Dutille, both from the newly declared Toronto Metropolitan University. Toronto Metropolitan was was on the short list. A lot of people thought it would be either the City University of Toronto or Toronto Metropolitan or something benign like that. Uh, I'm not surprised by the choice, but, you know, it's the predictable outcome of a broken process. What, what more can I say? Dr. Stagg, I mean, does when we introduce you that way, does it have the gravitas of an important educational institution? <laughs> I must admit it's very bland, and again, I think that's what they went for, something that identifies it with Toronto, uh, but won't offend anybody. And the whole idea of taking Edgerton Ryerson's name off was to get to a point where nobody would be offended. Kat Krieger, what do you think? Well, you know, many names have been changed with the um, through colonization, of course, and um, or will have been changed. TMU kind of sounds neat to me. It just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and I was recognizing, uh, you know, it's one of the students saying it's hard to take in how this changes. And I imagine what it must have been like a long time ago when many things were renamed and how it was for people to, to take that or accept that. So I, I kind of look at it as a new beginning. Um, you know, what things remind us of and what what should it remind us of? So it's, you know, for me, I've seen so many things, including my own name, change over the years. So I'm accepting of this. I'm not sure what we want to be reminded to when we walk through the doors of higher education and what does it inspire when we walk into that place. Hmm. Dr. Dutille, you were talking about a flawed process. How so? Oh, the whole thing was, was, was completely, uh, completely flawed. From the very beginning, the administration wanted the name change, and it organized uh, a fake process uh, to move it there. Um, you know, the everything from creating a fake committee 
of, of people who had absolutely no idea of what the Ryerson legacy was. He was condemned for a four-letter, a four-page letter, uh, and, you know, there is no way he was the architect of residential schools, but, you know, he stands today condemned, and the university has gotten rid of his reputation, which is very unfortunate. Dr. Stagg, do you agree with that? Oh, completely. They should have been up front. The, 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 the committee that did this should have been up front and just said, we do not want any Euro-Canadian white man or settler, as uh, the term is now used, uh, as the, the symbol of this university. Now, we could have had an open debate. You know, would this help with reconciliation? Instead, they came up with this nonsense. Uh, eventually, they came down and said, no, he wasn't responsible for residential schools. As Patrice said, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission said the same thing. But this idea has been put out there saying he was responsible for residential schools. And that's what everybody believes now. It's not true. I want to get Kat Krieger's view of this. You know, I, th- I think when we move quickly on things, maybe we don't have enough information. So I'm, I'm not saying pro or con here, but the idea of who was this person, what did they contribute, and does the good outweigh the possible bad? Or is it uh, a time when things are changing again? As I said some time back, many names changed in this area. And are we moving forward with this actual name change? You know, the the first thought that comes to mind is, not responding to the concept of what is nowadays cyberbullying. And I don't want to see anybody bullied in any way, shape, or form. Um, how can we welcome people back into the form, uh, the, the, the community? How can we balance things out? Um, and at the same time, if, if somebody needs to be called out for something, can we do that? Indigenous elder Kat Krieger, who works extensively in secondary and post-secondary institutions, history professor Dr. Ronald Stagg, and politics and public administration professor Dr. Patrice Dutil, both of Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson University. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We learned this week from the 2021 census, Canada's seniors aged 85 and older are among the fastest growing age groups in the country. Between 2016 and 2021, that demo grew by 12 percent, more than twice as much as the overall growth of the Canadian population at 5.2 percent. In fact, the number of people 85 plus has doubled since the 2001 census and is expected to triple by 2046. In addition, more than one in five Canadians of working age are close to retirement, an all-time high that will have major ripple effects on the country's economy, labor market, and healthcare system. Though we need to point out that given increased longevity, the definition of working age needs to be increased as well. Demographic expert David Kravitz is chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. And Doug Norris is senior vice president and chief demographer at Environics Analytics. They joined Libby for a discussion on some of the 2021 census findings. Many people today are delaying retirement and working uh, 
well into their late 60s and 70s. Um, so that certainly needs to be taken into account. Uh, it was interesting, though, during the pandemic, uh, there was a little bit of pullback in that delayed retirement. I think some people may have decided uh, enough. So uh, we'll have to see where the future trends go. Uh, David, what's your view of that? Because I, I, I've heard about both sides during the pandemic. Some people deciding to keep working because of the uncertainty around it, and some people, you know, packing it in early saying, I don't need this. Both of the above. The, the real story here is that this is not one size fits all anymore. It's not one age where one thing happens. Some of the people, by the way, who have um, retired, have come back into their jobs. Companies are reaching out to older workers as a solution to the labor shortage. People have retired in the sense that they've left their full-time job, but they now have a side hustle or a side gig or a second income. It's just all over the map, and all of the above are true simultaneously. You know, the most of the things that I've been reading about this are kind of, uh, you know, um, Nervous Nellies is going to be a, a catastrophe or a very a crisis, even more than a crisis that we have now for our health care system. Is, is that what you see in these numbers, Doug Norris? Well, certainly there are some challenges ahead. There are some different challenges with an older population. Uh, on the other hand, there, there are some very positive things with an older population, particularly in their ability to help their kids and grandkids out in many ways. But I do worry about the challenges ahead in terms of our uh, <clears throat> older population. Uh, when they, uh, as they get into their 80s and 90s, uh, they may need some kind of long-term care. And if you look at what happened during the pandemic to our long-term care institutions, it wasn't very pretty. And over the next 20 years, if nothing changed, we'd need twice as many beds as we have today. And I just don't think that's the way to go. I think we need to find better ways and different ways of caring for that older population that may need long-term care. And I think we can look to some of the Scandinavian countries for much more innovative models than just continuing to build the kind of nursing homes that we have today. Well, uh, I'm sure everyone agrees with you. And uh, there's a little of that happening right now in the Ontario election campaign, which is about to get officially underway. Uh, David, uh, do you think that there will be more urgency as a result of these numbers? There's no chance that the people who are today 60 to 74 are going to just sit back and hope that they fix the health care system by then. They're going to do stuff to mitigate the risk to themselves of being stuck in that situation. And about 25% of them, not a majority, uh, have the means and will have the means to uh, buy better accommodation, hire home care workers, avail themselves of the flood of technology that's pouring into the aging in place space. So it's a mistake to assume that the rickety architecture of today is going to have to take a pipeline. I agree with uh, my colleague here. They have to rethink everything because even if I subtract out all the wealthier people, and it's a big number, it's a million five, I'm left with two and a half million people who are going to be dependent on the system. And the system is there's no shot whatsoever of the healthcare system being able to accommodate that number. None, no chance, unless it completely uh, is reimagined from top to bottom, in my opinion.
demographic expert David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media, and Doug Norris, senior vice president and chief demographer at Environics Analytics. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, as Canadians get back to traveling, there are complaints of excessively long lineups at passport offices. We'll find out why next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. With COVID restrictions easing, Canadians who enjoy traveling are excited to pick up their delayed vacation plans. But there are challenges if your documents are not in order, including what some describe as epic lineups at passport offices. In fact, you are only supposed to show up in person for an expedited passport if you have confirmed travel in the next 25 days. So why is this happening and what are the governing liberals in Ottawa doing about it? Andy Wilson, producer of the Morning Zoom with Sam and Jane here on Zoomer Radio, has just gone through the process in renewing his passport. He joined Libby along with NDP MP Taylor Backrack and Conservative MP Michelle Rempel-Garner. I don't think the government planned for uh, the demand in travel that obviously would follow lifting of some of the travel restrictions related to the pandemic. There's just a lot of confusion and it just seems like chaos. So I started raising this issue last week. Uh, I just, the, the government needs to first of all admit that this is a problem, uh, put resources on the issue ASAP to clear the backlog. We've also heard anecdotally that there's tens of thousands of rejected passport applications where the applicant has not been notified yet. And so they don't even know that they need to reapply. Um, so the, and then the, set, the, the last thing is on an emergency basis, the, uh, the minister and the department needs to put some clarity around a process and probably have like a, a, a triage process here. It, this has to get sorted out yesterday. And uh, I, I, I hope the government takes this seriously. Now going to bring in NDP MP Taylor Backrack and Andy Wilson, who is a producer, one of our own. He's a producer on the morning Zoom. We heard from one of our local chiropractors and he had to drive for 45 minutes and stand in line. Mr. Backrack, your constituents can't even really do that because the closest passport office to drive to is 12 hours away, right? That's right. Um, if they live in a remote or rural community, many of them have to drive. In, in the case of my the community I live in, they have to drive 12 hours to Vancouver and then line up for uh, the, the kinds of wait times that we've heard already. So this is a, a huge barrier for everybody. And, and we're hearing from people, as Michelle said, in our offices that are incredibly frustrated because for two and a half years, they haven't been able to travel to see family. Uh, they've put off important trips. And now with the restrictions lifting, they're, they're really looking forward to that travel. Um, it, it's simply unacceptable, and we need the government to fix this immediately. Okay, I'm going to bring in Andy. And Andy, I guess you found a little bit of 
Uh, I don't know if we can call it a workaround, but uh, t- tell us your story. You you live in Hamilton. You had to drive to Thorold. Yes. So Thorold is a small town just outside of Niagara, and I had gone to a couple passport offices in previous days, and there was lineups around the block. The wait times were four or five hours. I had no interest in doing that. And the earliest appointment that I could book online was two months away. June 24th was the earliest appointment that I could book. And we want to book some travel plans in the summer. So I went to an office um, in Thorold and I tried calling. I tried online to see if I needed an appointment. Um, Nobody answered. It turned out they didn't have a direct line. So I just tried it. And there was a security guard there turning people away. It turned out that the office I had gone to was an express office. That was only taking people that had confirmed confirmed travel plans within 25 days. Um, so after talking to the security guard and everything else, I was kind of planning on on leaving. And I just said jokingly to the security guard, you know, we've had a nice discussion, you and I. Why don't you put your buddy Andy Wilson down on the waiting list, whatever you got there, and uh, nobody will be the wiser. And he said, well, I can't do that, but I'll tell you about, about a, a little loophole that we have. If you're planning on driving across the border you can get in. And I said, well, we're planning on going to the Caribbean. And he said, no, if you're planning on driving across the border, (laughs) we'll take you in. And I looked at him and I said, Libby, I forgot. We're going to Buffalo in a, in a couple weeks. And he said, no problem. We'll take you. And I got in and I was at the passport office, Libby, probably, probably for about 20 minutes in and out. So I don't know if I should have said that, but if you go to an express office, that's your loophole, and hopefully it'll work for you. It worked for me. Andy Wilson, producer of The Morning Zoom with Sam and Jane here on Zoomer Radio, along with NDP MP Taylor Backrack and Conservative MP Michelle Rempel-Garner. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Ontario's election campaign officially gets underway this coming week, but people with disabilities are decidedly displeased with what the governing PCs are offering. Libby was joined on Thursday by David Lepofsky, chair of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance and visiting professor of disability rights at the Osgood Hall Law School. What we really have is a situation where uh, the government uh, of Doug Ford has created kind of a new normal in Ontario, but it's a new normal that's worse for people with disabilities than before. And I want to be clear, you know, I and my coalition are nonpartisan. We're not trying to elect or defeat anyone. We would like all the parties to commit in this upcoming provincial election to reforms that will We'll fix that. Okay, so what are you looking for? Well, we're looking for uh, a series. The first thing we need is a government that's going to say, we will take over and we'll come up with a multi-year action plan to get this province to become fully accessible to people with disabilities. And there's some key components to that. First is rooting out some of the new barriers that the Ford government has created. They They allowed... Uh, a protocol to be entrenched in hospitals in the case where where there's a shortage of critical care beds that discriminates against patients with disabilities. That's got to be rooted out. They've allowed municipalities to unleash dangerous electric scooters on our roads and sidewalks and set 
it, no effective provincial standards to protect that would protect us from the dangers they pose. Um, they've allowed our schools, uh, they're authorizing uh, our spending, um, literally hundreds and hundreds of billions that they announce every other day on new hospitals, new schools, and so on, without requiring those new construction uh, projects to be properly disability accessible. Oh, so isn't it? Sorry, so is, we want that fixed. We want that fixed. Isn't there a rule that says those buildings have to be accessible? Well, so you are asking a perfectly reasonable question, and the answer is no. Uh, at least the building code is is uh, decades out of date. The Ontario Human Rights Code requires accessibility, but doesn't spell out the details. We've been trying to get the government to uh, pass regulations that would set standards so builders. Uh, know what they have to do, and in four years in power, they haven't done a thing about it. What we've, we are learning today is that they are expanding eligibility for a low-income tax credit for, to people up to an income of 50000 uh, Will that help people with disabilities? I would imagine a lot of them are low-income. Yeah, listen, any, any assistance for low-income people is going to help people with disabilities because they live at a significant number live um, at or below the poverty line, uh, but what what uh, what's been called for by advocates for uh, low income folks has been uh, you know some kind of help uh, in the form of adjust you know uh, significant uh, adjustments upwards for the Ontario Disability Support Program, which is social assistance aimed at those people with disabilities who who can't support themselves. Tax credits are great for people who've got tax planners, and a lot of poor people just don't. But we've got to look at the places that were safer two months ago and are less safe now. So uh, as an example, Toronto District School Board has a number of schools that are specifically for people with disabilities. In this limited number of schools, they include a population of students who are medically fragile. And the Toronto District School Board wanted to allow those schools to maintain their mask mandate. And the provincial government, uh, I guess, said no, because they're busy trying to enforce the removal of mandates. And we've gone public and said that's actually a violation of the Human Rights Code by the Ford government. So remember, these schools had a mask mandate in, in February and early March, but all of a sudden, late March, it's essential for them not to have a mask mandate against, according to the Ford government. And vulnerable kids with disabilities deserve better. That's the new normal, and oh. we think that's got to change. David Lepofsky, chair of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance and visiting professor of disability rights at the Osgood Hall Law School. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. 
Jake in Toronto phoned about the name change from Ryerson to Toronto Metropolitan University. I just don't like it. It seems like they're pinning everything onto this one thing and virtue signaling so damn hard, like from my perspective on the outside, because there are a lot of other individuals who have been involved in like the government of Canada at that. I mean, the church, numerous other places, people have been involved in the atrocities that happened over like last hundred years. But to come out of nowhere and then just choose like no name, brand name, like, oh, it feels like there was no effort put in. These virtue signaling attempts are just, I don't know, it's all for show in my opinion. Steve in Barry phoned to talk about banning Russian athletes and performers from competition and the stage. We should ban him because uh, he uses them as propaganda. Secondly, he's going after civilians, which you're not supposed to in a war. So if a few people lose a million dollars and they go back and he uses athletes as a, uh, as a propaganda thing, then maybe the people will say, how come these athletes are not being allowed to make money, millions of dollars in the West? And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Bob in Woodstock. About his thoughts during Ontario Budget Week and the lead-up to the provincial election call. I'm not impressed with the Ford government. I do realize they inherited quite a mess from the Liberal government. The whole thing with government coming along, making all kinds of promises when they want something from us, I think they have to go on their track record where they really didn't give us anything. I wish there was somebody to vote for. I don't see anybody with enough backbone to do anything. They, they go whichever way the wind happens to be blowing. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.